Al-Jazeera Podcast. Protests, screams and bullets. That's been the sound from some Iranian cities for the last four weeks. Women, life and freedom. Death to the dictator. And we are all Mahsa. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Essential Middle East Podcast. I'm Sami Zaydan. Government security forces have been trying to crack down on the widespread demonstrations after people hit the streets in anger. Let's take a step back now, guys, and talk about how the protests all started. You see, on September the 16th, Iran's so-called morality police detained a 22-year-old woman called Mahsa Amini for violating the dress code. And I should point out, her Kurdish name is Jenna. Well, she died two days later. Her family says she was beaten in detention. Iranian police say she had a heart attack. Her family says the police are lying. Well, she became an icon and her death led to the biggest anti-government protests in years. And here's what US President Joe Biden had to say about the protests. I look over there and I see free Iran. I want you to know we stand with the citizens and brave women of Iran. Well, it's time now to bring in our guest. Hi, my name is Mahmoud Amiri Mogadam. I'm a professor of neuroscience at the University of Oslo, and I'm a director of the NGO Iran Human Rights. Great to have you with us here today, Mahmoud. So let's start from the beginning. It's been four weeks of protests. Do you think it'll go on for much longer? I have not seen so much anger among people. When you follow these protesters, you see that they don't have the same fear as they used to have before. The last time we have a nationwide protest, it was in November 2019. And at that time, the authorities, they shut down the internet, started shooting at people. Many were killed, you know, hundreds, according to one report. But after six days, uh, there were no protests anymore. This time, the authorities started exactly the same way by shutting down internet where there were protests, shooting at the people. But then now it's soon one month and there are still protests. What kind of cities and provinces are involved? According to some reports, more than 2,000 different areas. Protests in Tehran simultaneously in six or seven parts of the town. And then you have not only in large cities, but also in smaller places. So this is a reason why I think the authorities haven't managed to control them, because when the protests are concentrated at one place, they just mobilize, they bring the revolutionary guards, and then they crack down. Is this just about a headscarf for women's rights, or 
Is there a broader sense of dissatisfaction with the authorities? Mahsa's brutal murder was the last drop that led to this huge outrage. People have had enough of the whole Islamic Republic. Highly incompetent and corrupt regime. Because, you know, Iran is a rich country when it comes to natural resources. When there is no rain, we have water crisis. When there is rain, we have flooding. During COVID, you know, Iran was the country in the Middle East more affected than any other country in the region. And people see it as a sign of incompetence. And I call them oppressive because it's not only about, you know, freedom of speech or lack of free elections. They want to interfere into the most private aspect of life. Like they stop the car, they drag out someone's sister or mother and say, why aren't you dressed properly? And this has happened in more than 40 years. So when that happened to Massa, I think so many Iranians, they identified themselves with what happened to her. So it's kind of touched a nerve with people, if I'm following you here, but you're saying there's also broader issues involved. Maybe we'll break them down, everything from the rain to perceptions of corruption and so on. What about the violence, though, that... Um, Human rights groups like Human Rights Watch say videos indicate excessive use of force against protesters. Is that consistent with what you've been finding? Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the issues that we are following very closely. We have counted around more than 210 people who are killed and we have managed to confirm them. How do you document figures like that? Iran Human Rights has been documenting mainly death penalty cases in Iran and between 10 and 30 percent of all executions are announced. So during all these 15 years, we have managed to build up a broad network inside Iran. Our sources inside Iran, they can be family members, they can be eyewitnesses, they can be doctors, nurses, other rights groups. And we only include cases that are confirmed by two independent sources. If we talk about why people go out into the streets and risk their, um, potentially risk their well-being and safety and lives, you mentioned drought, rain, um, economic conditions, corruption. How much of the anger is driven by a really complicated, shall we say, and difficult economic situation that people have to endure. It is difficult to say in whether it is the driving force or not, but it's certainly part of the picture. You see, the inflation is enormous. Prices, they change from day to day. And I guess they're going up, right? They're not going down. Absolutely. And it's not like a little bit ordinary things like tomato or chicken or meat. This month to next month, it could be like twice as high. At the same time, thanks to the internet, they see how people live other places and uh, what a normal life is. Many Iranians are talking about the budget that the Revolutionary Guards is using both to suppress its own people, but also to aid, you know, its proxies in Lebanon, in Yemen, in Iraq. And then they see families of Ayatollahs 
living abroad, living a luxurious life, and they look at themselves that, okay, we have to actually count how much money we have this month, what we can eat, and Iran used to have pretty large middle class. So this economic situation has certainly uh, played a role in their outrage. If we talk about the economics of Iran right now, we can't forget to mention that the country is under sanctions, right? Western sanctions. There have been programs, of the maximum pressure programs of U.S. administrations. To what extent has that contributed to the economic hardship and suffering of the Iranian people? I think it has certainly contributed. Do you think most Iranians look at this and say, well, this is what the sanctions wanted to achieve, was a rebellion against authorities? The authorities don't do what they are supposed to do to counteract the sanctions. Most Iranians, they say that, listen, around 2015 and 17, 18, there were no sanctions. Life situation didn't get improved, but the regime and its main um, oppressive organ, the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards, their share of money increased they became more powerful. So I don't think people look at sanctions as the reason why they are suffering, but they look at the corruption and, of course, they are angry. Why should we be in the sanctions? Why do we need a nuclear program that uh, certainly we don't need it for electricity? Iran has so much oil and gas and everything else. Despite the fact that maybe, as you say, that these sanctions have actually contributed in making the economic situation more difficult, but they have also contributed in making the enormous corruption and lack of competence more visible. But has there been a change of emphasis on policies towards, you know, the morality police and their powers and operations, policies on women's dress since Ibrahim Raisi came to power? I don't think it depends on... Ibrahim Raisi, but you can rather say that Ibrahim Raisi was put there because the policy was supposed to be more oppressive. But put there by who? I mean, he was elected. Well, you know, you can call it election in Iran, but this is not election. Three or four candidates that the Supreme Leader has approved, and uh, among them, basically, there is no difference. Last election, even according to official numbers, it had the lowest turnout in many, many years. And the so-called reformist faction, which normally used to be you know, those who give hope to people to find a solution within the system, I think they received very, very low numbers. And I think that was a turning point showing that People don't have any hope. People are losing faith with the system itself, which would be a dangerous development. Yes, exactly. Right, we've got to take a, a little break here, but we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Chris Baird, and I'm part of Al Jazeera's new TikTok team. If you're looking for quick explanations about the biggest news stories, follow us at Al Jazeera on TikTok. You can find exclusive content and learn more about the world with Al Jazeera on TikTok. All right, everyone, welcome back. Let's continue talking about the situation with those protests in Iran. 
Anger at the regime has been particularly strong in Iran's Kurdish regions. Masa Amini, whose death in police custody sparked the protest last month, was Kurdish. So, Mahmoud, Kurdish areas and provinces, they've seen some big protests, haven't they? Why? Is it because Mahsa was Kurdish? In general, ethnic minorities in Iran have never been happy with the Islamic Republic. I mean, we have Kurdish regions, we have also Baluchistan, southeast of Iran, where there have been massive protests. And they feel that they are treated as uh, second-grade citizens, the authorities' approach to them is a security approach. Both Kurdistan and Zahedan have long been marginalized, and they are far from the capital, which is one reason, activists tell us, that the authorities are less hesitant to use more force there. So are we seeing some of these minority grievances playing out in the current protests now? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. So that's why I say that all the outrage that all different groups have had, it comes out now. And uh, again, the difference between this time and previous time is that everyone is out. What about the youth? Can we focus on the youth? I mean, if you look at Western media coverage from the Guardian newspaper to the Atlantic, a lot of focus on the role of the youth in protests. Are they the driving force? Certainly, they are very important. They have been in the protests from the very beginning. But we also see, you know, now the banned trade unions are being active. We have seen, you know, we don't only have protests, but we also have strikes in the oil sector. Many shops, especially in Kurdish regions, but also in some other Iranian towns, have been closed. They are on strike. So now we see that beside the youth who play absolutely very important role, all other parts of the society is also joining the protests. And I think that's also another reason why they haven't managed to control despite using extensive violence. You look at some of the demographics I looked up, over 60% of the population are estimated to be under 30. And Iran has the highest number of internet users in the region, according to one stat from three years ago. Is that part of the story? Young generation, very internet connected and savvy? Absolutely. It really gives me hope because, you know, they just say that we want a normal life. They are not as scared as the previous generation. I wonder, though, if we should be careful, Mahmoud, when we say they, as if we're referring to the youth as a monolithic one entity. There have been protests in support of the government as well, right? So... How do we know who speaks for the majority here? In a country where we don't have freedom of speech and, you know, we cannot run surveys, of course, we cannot see that how many people actually support the current regime. But, you know, when they are trying to make demonstration in support of the government, they mobilize, they give free food, they bring buses they do, you know, everything to accommodate people who are going to take part. On the other side, we see that those who go and protest against the regime, not only they don't get anything, they risk their lives and the regime has to use extensive force. So I think that maybe the main sign the regime believes that the majority don't want it 
is that they have to use so much force. What about the government's assertion that foreign powers, Israel, the US, the UK, that they are involved or instigating riots? I mean, at least Iranians and the Iranian regime, I don't think none of them believe in that because uh, I would rather say that the situation of Iranian people and their rights has never been on the agenda of the international community. Isn't it clear that there is a difference in tone from some of the Western countries which have been, shall we say, much quicker to focus, to condemn what's happening to protesters in Iran compared to when you look at the reaction of those same Western countries to what was happening in the early days of the Arab Spring, where protesters were also being shot and killed, and many Western countries were criticized by their own think tanks, expressing concern about how slow Washington, for example, was in taking a firm, clear position on the killing of protesters in some of the countries of the Arab Spring, which had regimes allied to the U.S., Right? There is a clear kind of double standards. Yeah, you can say that. But, you know, at that time, if you remember, right before Arab Spring, we had large protests in 2009. The reason why we have uh, seen, you know, more clear reactions this time, although I don't believe that's enough, is that they also see that this time is different. And, you know, what happened to Massa, you know, it didn't only move people in Iran, but also, I think, across the world, you know, we have seen demonstrations in Iran's neighboring country. In Turkey, there were women demonstrating and cutting their hair, you know, in, in anger. We have seen the same pictures in many European capitals. And I think the public opinion also forces the government to make a reaction. <laughs> So, Mahmoud, at the end of the day, how much of a threat are the protests to the government? I mean, if you listen to the Supreme Leader, Ali Khamenei, he said, hey, the Islamic Republic is an unshakable tree. No one's going to be able to uproot it. So do you think authorities, there will be able to squash these protests? Because they've been able to do that in the past, haven't they? They might be able to do it this time as well, although we haven't had four weeks of continuous protests despite the crackdown before. So this is, without any doubt, the biggest crisis the Islamic Republic has been facing. Are we seeing cracks within the regime when you talk about the biggest crisis? I mean, we heard from the former Speaker of Parliament, Ali Arajani, saying, hey, there should be a re-examination of some of the laws, the hijab law. Well, it just shows that he sees the threat that actually it's about the existence of the Islamic Republic. I really don't think that Ali Larijani actually is doing it to make reforms, but rather to calm down the protesters and to save the regime. These protests, if they continue, they have the potential to bring about a big change. But, you know, we know that the Iranian authorities are willing to go as far as it takes. How far could they go? There are different scenarios. I don't think we will go back to what you call pre-Massa time, even if the authorities manage to crack down the protests. You know, when they burn their hijab, it's possible actually that their mother is having a hijab. So it's not about hijab itself, but they show their uh, anger towards the regime and that they are not afraid. Process might take some time. We don't know how long or how short, but 
it has started. Well, thank you so much for this chat. It's been really good talking to you, Mahmoud. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening. I should mention, of course, this episode was produced by Khaled Sultan. Research was done by our intern, Nada Shakir, and sound designed by George Elwir. Our engagement producer is Ayal Malik and assistant engagement producer Munira Dosri. Our executive producer is Omar Saleh and Al Jazeera's head of audio is Ney Alvarez. I'm your host, Sami Zaydan. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Listener.